Welcome to the podcast of the Believer's Bible Class, a part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Each week we share the Bible lesson from our longtime teacher, Doug Brady. Doug has studied the biblical scriptures throughout life and is knowledgeable in both ancient Greek and Hebrew, which makes his explanations of scripture all the more interesting and most certainly all the more accurate. Professionally, Doug is an attorney, although he considers his Bible teaching as his godly profession. In our continuing major study of the book of Daniel, we are looking at the 11th chapter of Daniel. And today we continue what was started last week as we look at the decline of the Grecian Empire. Here, the prophecy that is brought to Daniel shows things that will happen in the future. And this includes the Greeks who as of the time of the prophecy coming to Daniel, was still several hundred years in the future. So today's lesson is very important for us to see. The Believer's Bible Class is part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. For over 154 years, the message of the Bible has been taught and sent around the world. Our class is part of that church, and the over 140 people who are part of this class are interested in deep study into the Holy Scriptures, which certainly include the prophetic and historical book of Daniel. We meet every Sunday morning at 9.15 in Lavorne Hall, located on the lower level of the new Worship Center building, and we invite you to visit our class if you are ever in the Dallas area. Doug has taken his place at the podium, ready to begin this historical lesson. So open your Bible to the 11th chapter of Daniel and follow along. Here now is our longtime teacher, Doug Brady. We are studying the book of Daniel. There's some people that say we're having a great time as we're going through chapter 11. Other people say we are mired in chapter 11. But anyway, I want you to see up to now... We've kind of had a broad span of history. Uh, chapter 11 has talked about Persia. It's talked about Alexander. It's talked about all these different kings in Egypt and in Syria. And it, it's really been a, a broad time. Now, we've also been able to see God's omniscience as he knows what is going on and what is going on according to his plan. And I think we need to see that, and we're going to see it even more today, that God has a plan. In fact, I believe he's written it all out in the scripture of truth or the book of truth, the writing of truth it talked about in chapter 10. And we're seeing it come to pass. In fact, the angel who brought this message to Daniel with this vision read it in the writing of truth before he showed up to talk to Daniel. Now, the vision is going to slow down now. And we're going to start looking at really one man. We'll talk about two today. But most of the rest of chapter 11 from verses 20 to 35 is going to be about one man. Now, this man calls himself Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes means God manifest. That's what he calls himself, I will not. I will refer to him as Antiochus IV uh, or Antiochus, but that's all I'm going to do. 
And in fact, God had a different name for him, which we'll find out when we get to verse 11. But I want you to see that this portion of chapter 11, it really relates to the story of two kings from Syria. And we're going to talk about those two kings, Seleucus the fourth and Antiochus the fourth. And we're going to see those as we go forward. Now, the first one, Seleucus the fourth, he looks something like this and he ruled for about, you know, 12 years. Then came this guy, Antiochus the fourth. He's the second. He ruled for about 11 years. Those really aren't long periods of time. But what Antiochus was able to do during that period of time, you're going to find rather disturbing, let's say. And it's because he is a type or a prefigurement of someone who is to come, which will be spoken about in Daniel 11 from verses 36 through the end of the chapter. Now, I want you to open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 11, starting in verse 20. But before we read God's word, let's pray. Father, I thank you for all the people who could be here today and could share this time with us. I pray that I will be your faithful servant and rightly divide the word of truth, that I will say the things only that you want said. I pray, Father, that you will work in our hearts and have your Holy Spirit explain this rather difficult passage. I thank you for the things that you've showed me and Father, if there's something else you want me to see and be able to share this morning, please put it on my heart. I pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus, and the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Now, Daniel 11, verse 20. Then in his place one will arise who will send an oppressor through the jewel of the kingdom, and yet within a few days he will be shattered, though not in anger nor in battle. Now... The first thing we need to recognize, because we didn't read before, is the antecedent of this pronoun, his. It's Antiochus III, also known by some as Antiochus the Great. He was the one who sent his daughter Cleopatra down to Egypt. And he is the one who was the father of Seleucus IV. Now, Seleucus IV ascended the throne of Syria, that is the kingdom of the north, following his father's death. And I want you to see that he, how God said this. You see, yet within a few days, he will be shattered. A few days. Well, how long did he reign? 12 years. That's just a few days to God. You know, Julie and I uh, uh, yesterday uh, celebrated our 11th anniversary. It seems like we've been together my whole life is wonderful. 11 years is, is, is a long time to us. A few days to God. You need to see how God sees time. He says, your life is just a vapor. You know, have you ever put a tea kettle on the stove and pretty soon it starts buzzing or, or whistling and you see the steam come out of the side and then it just disappears. That's what our life is like as far as time goes with God compared to eternity. And so he says this, Seleucus ascended the throne of Syria and upon donning his crown, he realized the position that his father had put him in. They are an extremely indebted 
Do you know who they are indebted to? Rome. Rome has said, you're going to pay us tribute. And in fact, we want a hostage to secure your payment of tribute. You've ever heard of these loan sharks who have people who collect on the loans that are outstanding and haven't been paid timely? And some of the tactics they use? Well, Rome makes those people look like child's play. And you remember the father had sought to cover those debts by robbing one of the temples in his country, the temple of Jupiter, and that didn't work out very well for him. So Seleucus tried to increase the taxes uh, on his subjects, uh, and uh, he raised them very high. And uh, as a result, there was great animosity. And he didn't get all the money he needed to pay tribute. So he's trying to figure out a way to collect this money, but he doesn't want to make the same mistake his father made about robbing a temple in his own kingdom. So he came up with this great idea. I have this really hotshot tax collector. His name is Heliodorus, and I'm going to send him, look at this, this point, send an oppressor through the jewel of his kingdom. Who do you think the jewel of his kingdom was? Israel. So not only is he going to go down there and tax those people, He's going to loot the temple down there. And so Heliodorus is sent down there and he is going to collect taxes and then he's going to loot their temple. And the tribute was paid. And Heliodorus was quite successful and he brought back a great amount of money. But then he decides, you know what? This is not a good king for us to have. And he poisons Seleucus IV. And now he's dead. Now, notice what's going on. Antiochus III, Seleucus IV's father, he looted the temples, and it enraged the people in his, in his kingdom. And what did they do? They got so angry, they killed him. All right? Daniel, looking three to four hundred years into the future, says, wait a second. Yet a few days and he will be shattered. That means his, he will die, though not in anger nor in battle. Did the people rise up to kill him? No. Was, did he lead his troops in the battle and die? No. Instead, he was just poisoned. He was through in an intrigue type situation. Daniel saw that three or four hundred years in the future. From 536 down to the uh, second century BC, 190, 180, somewhere in there. And I want you to see what's going on here and how exactly Daniel is saying these things are going to happen. Usually kings, they only died either of a revolt or in battle or old age. That, that's the way they would die. Not Seleucus. Which brings us now to Daniel chapter 11, verse 21. In his place, that is in Seleucus's place, a despicable person will arise on whom the honor of kingship has not been conferred, but he will come in a time of tranquility and seize the kingdom by intrigue. So what is this, what is this passage saying? Well, first it uses this term despicable person to describe Antiochus the fourth. In the King James, it's vile. If you look in your notes, 
you'll see the word there that could be used. It's the word baza or batsa. And what batsa means is to be despised, to be despicable, to be vile, to be worthless. That's the way God describes this man. That's the name. You know, he gives his name God manifest. God gives him this name. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. I wonder if God has given a name like that to any of our political way. Uh, now, he will arise. Now, let me tell you how big a mistake some people can make. Because Sir Lucas IV, he was not real bright. Maybe put another way, he was not the sharpest knife in the drawer. Because Rome demanded a hostage, you remember? Rome said, we think the best hostage would be your brother, Antiochus IV. He said, well, I'm going to send my son, Demetrius, who's the heir apparent to the throne. So now, Heliodorus kills Seleucus IV. The one who should be sitting now on the throne is held hostage in Rome. Does Rome easily give up the hostages? Well, I've got something important back home I need to leave. No, doesn't do that. And so what happens? The honor of kingship would have been conferred on Demetrius. But now this guy, who's Daniel's predicting, the honor of kingship has not been confirmed. But in a time of peace, he will seize the kingdom by intrigue. And that is exactly what Antiochus IV did. And so he's come in and he has done this. Now, something else I want you to see. When he says despicable person, would this be a despicable person to the higher-ups in Damascus? No. Who, from whose perspective now are we seeing this vision? Israel's. And as far as Israel's concerned, this is clearly a despicable person. And we need to understand that and how important it is. Now, why was Antiochus referred to as a despicable person by God, by the angelic messenger, and then by Daniel? Let me explain something to you that I think is very important. God always provides types of key things. Key things. Let me give you an example. If you have your Bibles, you might open it to Genesis chapter 5. In Genesis chapter 5, you look at this and you say, now what of any value am I going to find in Genesis? All it's about is a bunch of begatting. And I don't need to read about somebody else's begatting. But if you look in verse 18, it talks about a fellow named Jared. And Jared lived 162 years and became the father of Enoch. Then Jared lived 800 years after he became the father of Enoch, and he had other sons and daughters. Then you look in verse 21. Enoch lived 65 years, and he became the father of Methuselah. Then Enoch walked with God 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years, you think. Well, that poor guy, he only got to live 365 years. Everybody else was living between 750 to 1,000. 
But you read verse 24, Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. The word they tend to use here is translated him. But Enoch was a type of what? The church who's going to be taken in the rapture. He gives us a type or a picture of that. Bonnie. I was just going to say, I think I heard something this morning that Enoch was in the line of Christ. In other words, connected by a Mary. Is that correct? I think if you follow it down, yes, but that line's interrupted with Noah. He's going to Noah, and then everybody else is cut off except Noah and his sons. But this begatting line does come down. Of course, that's like saying Adam's in the line of Christ. But let's go on and think about this. There is a man who may be alive today, we don't know, who is going to be called the man of lawlessness, the son of perdition, the beast, or maybe the name you're most familiar with, the Antichrist. Would God ever give us a type or a prefigurement of that man and what he would do? Yes, he would. Do you know how many he's given us? A lot of people would say one. I'm going to suggest to you two. He's given us two types of the Antichrist. You can look at these two men, look at their lives, and you can see who it is. Nimrod's the first, and then the next one, the second one I see, is Antiochus the fourth. These guys are types of the Antichrist. If you want to learn about the Antichrist, you now, I can tell you, there's a woman sitting at one of these tables here who would say, you're going to talk about Nimrod? You need to point this out. Now, who was Nimrod? When did he live? He lived at the time of the Tower of Babel. In fact, he was the one who was forming a one-world government at the time of the Tower of Babel, and he was the one helping to build that tower. And in fact, if you look at artist's renditions of that tower, it would look something like this. This is what they're saying it looked like. Now, this one particular lady in our class would say, if you're going to show them that, Doug, you have to show them this. Uh, that's headquarters of European Union. It's modeled after the Tower of Babel. But I wanted to show you that just so she wouldn't get unhappy at me. If you want to look at the story of Nimrod, it's in Genesis 10, uh, 8 through 10. And the second one, Antiochus IV, the second type of the Antichrist, this is the second time we've met him. Because if you remember back in chapter 8, I know that seems like a very long time ago, but chapter 8, in, in several places, it talks about someone, the small horn that comes out of the Grecian Empire. That is Antiochus IV. Now, Antiochus IV sees himself as the guy who follows after Alexander. Alexander was a great leader, Antiochus IV, not so much. But he believed in the Hellenization process. Do you remember in our country, we used to have something in our history called the Manifest Destiny. Anybody remember? Didn't they, you teach you real American history in, in school? Not like they're teaching now. And we're going to take over this whole North American continent, basically, from the Atlantic to the Pacific. It should be all ours. It should be all American. And, of course, if we'd have stopped before we got to the left coast, we... Now, I, I shouldn't have said that. But the fact is the, that 
He believed in the Hellenization process. Now, what does that mean? All the women are named Helen? No, it has nothing to do with that. It means everything should be Grecian. The culture should be Greek. The language should be Greek. The religion should be Greek. Everything should be Greek. The architecture should be Greek. But there was one part of his kingdom that wouldn't have anything to do with that. Their language was not going to be Greek. Their arts were not going to be Greek. Their religion and culture were not going to be Greek. They had their own language. They had their own land. They had their own religion. They had their own temple. And that was Israel. And they weren't going to give in. And because of that, Antiochus hated them. And he decided that if I'm going to fight any wars, I need to deal with Israel. They are such an obstinate and problematic people. And they just cause trouble. They're always claiming their own land and their own system, and they'll never convert. Do we see that in the news today? Israel is the problem. It's not anybody else, it's Israel. If we can solve the Middle East problem, we just have to crack that nut Israel. Why? Because they're speaking contrary to the creator of the universe. And they're opposing his people whom he loves and whom he will protect. Now, let's look at this first warfare of Antiochus IV and we'll see its effect on Israel. In Daniel 11, 22-24, it says this, The overflowing forces will be flooded away before him and shattered, and also the prince of the covenant. And after an alliance is made with him, he will practice deception, and he will go up and gain power with a small force of people. And in a time of tranquility, he will enter the richest parts of the realm, and he will accomplish what his fathers never did, nor his ancestors, and he will distribute plunder and booty and possessions among them, and he will devise his scheme against the strongholds, but only for a time. And he will stir up his strength and courage against the king of the south with a large army. So the king of the south will mobilize an extremely large and mighty army for war, but he will not stand, for schemes will be devised against him, and those who eat his choice food will destroy him, and his army will overflow, but many will fall down slain. Now, let's try and understand this passage. Number one, you'll see this phrase, his opposition will be shattered. That's a word to meaning destroyed, and I want you to see that. So, the forces against him, which is the king of the south, they're going to they're gonna fail. They're going to lose. They will fall in battle, and many of them will be slain. Now, that's the general statement to start it. Someone else, we need to read this and understand, also the prince of the covenant. Also the prince of the covenant, what? Will be shattered. Now, who is? We've run into this word prince before. It's a word used in Daniel 9, 24 through 27. What's another way you could translate this word prince? Ruler. Ruler. Now, who is the prince or the ruler of the covenant at this time? That would be the high priest of Israel. They're talking about Israel. And there was a high priest... Now, you remember, the high priest has to be of a certain family group. He just can't be anybody. They're not elected. They're chosen. And they have to meet certain rigid 
qualifications. And the high priest uh, at, at this time was a guy named Onesius, and Onesius III. And Onesius III was a godly man, godly man. And he was there, Antiochus wanted certain things, and he said, no, we're not doing that. And Antiochus said, you know what? Maybe he's just the obstacle. So he did some research, that is, Antiochus did, and he said, I'm deposing you as the high priest of Israel, and I'm going to appoint your brother, a guy named Joshua. Now, was Joshua the kind of guy who would oppose Antiochus? No. In fact, he was a compromiser. And in fact, he changed his name from Joshua to Jason. Now, what kind of a name is Joshua? Hebrew. What kind of a name is Jason? Great. Ah, you begin to see what's going on here. And so he, he comes in and he does that and he removes him and he puts in a man who will compromise. And in fact, uh, if you like, you could call him Jason the puppet. And that's what he does. Now, in these passages, I'm going to point out today three key principles, I think, that we should learn from what, what's going on here. And we've now come to the first principle that I want you to see. If you are led by a compromiser, you will always be led in circles, never achieving what was intended for you. Israel is going down now because of their leader. Have we ever seen examples of that in our own country? You see, the, the principle is true. If your leader is Neville Chamberlain, that's exactly what's going to happen to you. And so we see this principle. Now, then I want you to see Antiochus believed it was time to go to war. And he started by attacking the north's old enemy, the king of the south. And his forces did really well. And even though the king of the south seemed to have a superior force, there was a, a division in his kingdom. Now let's, let's look at this passage again. And the king of the south, Antiochus, who's coming against the king of the south, had a large army. But look what it says about the king of the south. So the king of the south mobilized an extremely large mighty army for war. Based on that, who should win? The South should. But something happens. Look at the next part. But schemes will be devised against him, the king of the South. And even further, those who eat his choicest food will destroy him. What happens is there is a division in the South, the kingdom of the South. And it goes into two or more factions. And they're fighting against each other. And each of them are thinking, you know what? We could use the king of the north to destroy these bad guys down here, the other faction. And then we'll be able to, to take over. Oh, there you see the second principle. A house divided against itself will usually fail. How, does, how far does this principle go? A business divided against itself will fail. An organization divided against itself will fail. A marriage divided against itself will fail. Even a state or a country. Now, what's the verse that was just quoted? Jesus said that principle. Didn't he, Jerry? No, Jesus. Yeah, right there in Luke 11. But he knew their thoughts and said to them, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a house divided against himself fails. 
What president of ours quoted that passage? Abraham Lincoln. One of the best presidents we ever had. One of the worst things that could happen to the South was the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. Instead of bitterness, he would have promoted togetherness and joined back in understanding that together we can be strong. Divided, we will be weak. So, look now in Daniel eleven twenty-seven. As for both kings, that is the kings of the south and the king of the north, their hearts will be intent on evil. And they will speak lies to each other at the same table. But it will not succeed, for their end is still to come. What is it saying? These kings are going to sit down at a negotiating table. They may be even eating a meal together at this table. And they're going to lie to each other. Their agreement is going to be based on lies. Now, I want you to think about this a second. What area of the world is this? Middle East. And they're doing this. I saw and found a perfect example of this. It happened in 1993. Do you know who came to our country in 1993 to talk about peace? Yasser Arafat. He was the leader of the Palestinian Liberation Army. And what was his religion? Islam. Islam. All right. Yep. Now, Israel sent Yitzhak Rabin and Shimon Perez. When Arafat arrived, though, he had a, held a big press conference. And he told the press in America, the Palestinian people, they want a lasting peace. One that they can have forever. And we're willing to bargain with Israel in good faith, he said. Now, when he returned to his people to report to them what had happened, he gave a speech, but it was in Arabic. But you can find, if you look carefully, a translation of that speech. And in that speech, he told them that he really did want a lasting peace in Palestine. But the only way that could happen would be if Israel was eradicated. Then there would be no fighting if Israel was gone. Now, what was this man practicing? The answer is this. Tekiah. What is Tekiah? It is a principle in the Quran that says there is nothing wrong for you to lie to someone else, but it has to be done for the purposes of the Quran and the Islamic religion. So you can lie if you're furthering Allah's purpose. If you can't, if you're not, then lying is wrong. Who do you think is the father of that? <laughs> yeah, I don't need to tell you, do I? Now, that brings us to a third principle that I think we ought to see. You never trust someone who believes that lying can be moral or that the end justifies the means. Any relationship you enter into, whether it's friendship, marriage, business, ministry, must be anchored in unfettered trust. We must beware of those who say or promise anything in order to achieve their ends. Now, have you seen in our country that it seems like everyone's lying and there's no consequences? 
You listen to those talking heads on the news, and they're lying to us constantly. And when it, show, when it, when it turns out that they're lying, and we have proof that they're lying, does anything happen? No. Yeah, or in politicians, and they lie. When, when you say that, you, you need to think about that. There was in America a time when lying had consequences. Doesn't seem like it anymore. Well, if they were to catch Frank lying, there would be consequences for Frank because there's different rules for people who believe like Frank does. And we keep saying, God, why won't you do it now? And his answer is, because it's not my time yet. It's not time yet. Now, let's go on to chapter 11, verse 28. Talking about Antiochus. Then he will return to his land and with much plunder that he's taken from Egypt. But his heart will be set against the holy covenant and he will take action and they will and then return to his own land. So on the way back, where's he going to stop? Israel. Understand much plunder means great wealth. And where it says his heart will be set against the holy covenant, that's Israel. Now, what does the historical record show here? Antiochus came to just hate Israel because they were so stubborn and such an obstacle to his Hellenization plans. And he set out to crush that indomitable spirit. He was going to crush it. And he came into the land bearing the name Antiochus Epiphanes. The Jewish people renamed him. They renamed him Antiochus Epimemes, which means... Antiochus the madman. But he slaughtered thousands of Jews. He placed the man in the position of high priest that was not even descendant of Aaron. That is, he got rid of Jason, the, the puppet, and he put in a different man who was not even supposed to be a high priest. He had an image of Zeus erected in the temple. I want you to, let's just stop right there. He had an image of Zeus erected in the temple. What in the world could that be prefiguring? Well, how about Revelation chapter 13, where it talks about the Antichrist having a, a, a picture or an image, a statue of himself put into the temple. You say, but there's no temple, Doug. Yeah, but there will be. There will be. Not only that, he's going to sacrifice a swine on the brazen altar to Zeus and anoint the temple with its juices. Probably smelled good, but it uh, would certainly affect those Jewish people who God had told that's unclean. Pigs are unclean. And he forbid all forms of Judaistic worship practices. He forbid circumcision. If he caught a young boy who'd been circumcised, he'd kill the boy and his mother. Well, you said, well, well wait, uh, that happened before you made this rule. So what? What's your point? Would be how Antiochus would respond to that. He also forbid the reading of God's word and ordered that all such books and scrolls be burned or destroyed. Now, I want you to think about this. God's word was written, was it written just for the Jews? No, no this was written for us too. And if you destroy it, what happens? We don't get it. Why would God allow something like this to happen? Why in the world would he have something like this as part of his plan? That this doesn't seem right, and we first tend to look at it. Well, 
There's two points I want you to see here before we finish today. Number one, the Jewish people were put to a hard decision here. To go along with Antiochus' plan and avoid the harsh consequences he prescribed, or to refuse to compromise and face the consequences. Who was supposed to be an example for them on the question that was coming? This question right here. Who? Daniel. Wasn't Daniel the guy who said, I'm not going to compromise. If the consequences come, they come. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were really handing out Mishael Nazareth. Did they not face the same question? They said, you know, our God's able to save us. But even if he doesn't, we're still going to serve him. We need to understand that. This, they were put to this question. What are they going to do? Now, I'm not going to tell you what the people of Israel are going to do. But I'm going to tell you that his decision, Antiochus IV, to destroy the Bible was all part of God's plan. Why? Because guess what group of people arose at this time? Julie, do you know their name? No. The Essenes. What were the Essenes all about? They got every single book they could possibly find. And they took it out of Jerusalem and everywhere else where Antiochus thought they would be. And they went to a place. Do we have a map? Right here. Qumran. And there at Qumran, they didn't just hide those manuscripts. They copied them over and over. You find one and destroy it, we got another. And it was amazing what all they did. And let's look at this place because I've been there before. This shows a little map of, of it, modern day. And you can see, you, you drive in that one road and you park right there. And then you can go into their rooms and you see everything they have and how they would do things. You can even see the caves. You can see they have them numbered down here at the why am I not using a pointer? I don't know. I expect you to be able to see where I'm pointing. Uh, here's one through three up here. Four and five, and over here, six. Now, these are the ones I'm most familiar with. I got to visit that place. That is a very unique place. Now, you say, well, why are you familiar with it? Let me say that someone who was on that trip kind of left the main group and went out and climbed into the caves at 4 and 5 and 6. And uh, 4 and 5 looks something like this. Here and here. And that's where a majority of the scrolls were kept and were hidden in clay vessels. Now, that person who did that, he was a little late coming back to the group. And as he climbed on the bus and looked around, he did see some rather official-looking people who were unhappy coming towards the bus. And he talked to the tourist and said, we need to leave right now. And we did, and I, I, you know, nothing happened. But that guy did get to see the inside of the case. It did so happen he had a flashlight with him at the time, uh, which would indicate premeditation. <laughs> to, uh, but the statute of limitations, I believe, has passed and run. So... But those caves are amazing. And it's amazing what God did in this plan. And you see how God could use something you think is just totally rotten 
to preserve these books for us. Now when they want to say, well, Daniel was written in 165 B.C. Oh, no, it wasn't. They had a copy over it in Qumran. And we found fragments of that copy. If you say that, you're a liar. And you can say that with all honesty. They are lying to us. The, look at this. Those are a picture of some of the scrolls that they found. Let me try and explain something to you this way. And, and how they would do this. Have you ever seen the writing, let's say first the printing of a second grade teacher? It's perfect. When I was in second grade, they had a thing around the, the top of the room. It started over here with A, had the capital A and the lowercase a, all the way around. So you could see exactly how to make these letters. And she did it all the time. And I remember Miss Deans, she had perfect printing. When I got to third grade, my teacher, I can't remember her name, they had the same thing, only it was cursive. Why those idiots decided for a while not to teach cursive, I don't know. I mean, how's a person supposed to sign their name? Uh, I guess they just wanted to put a big X again. But whatever the case, she could, she could write, my third grade teacher could write perfectly. Uh, it used to be we studied that. My dad told me, my dad had a beautiful signature. It was so beautiful, I never could learn to copy it. I wanted to at certain times. But the fact is, because he practiced it all, and they did those kind of things. But now, if you were to look at these scrolls and have a picture of them like this, you see it's perfectly, perfectly in line here with each other. These letters, these passages are across are perfect. Now, you're thinking start here and go over here. No, you start over here and you go this way. You always read Hebrew from right to left. And you say, why would you do that? Well, it comes because when you start out, if you're right-handed and you were going to mark with a stylus and a hammer of some time, you would do it this way. You wouldn't do it this way. So that's the reason that it goes from right to left. And those letters, if you ever get to see them carefully, they are perfectly formed, just like a second grade teacher would print. Uh, and that's the way they're doing it in Hebrew. And those scrolls are so, were so well preserved for what they had to work with. It was amazing how God got them to do it. And they hid copies of God's word. And that now is still the greatest archaeological discovery made in the 20th century. And so I know that wouldn't it be cool if... In the 21st century, John, we could find Noah's Ark. But for some reason, God hasn't let us do that yet. Although there are people who say they have. But I mean where it's so unequivocal, nobody could deny it. I pray for that, in fact. And if you really look at my computer, the background is Mount Ararat. Because I would love for us to find the Ark. But what I'm trying to say to you, and what, before we finish, is this. God has a plan in everything that happens. Now, we can look at some of the things that's happening in our nation now. How could God have a plan for that? Well, when the guy marches in and says, I'm burning every copy of God's word I can find. You ask, how could God have a plan for that? And yet we've just seen God's plan. God is in control. He never 
loses control. He is going to do exactly what it wants. It's going to happen exactly on its time. And it's going to have exactly the results that God wants. And it doesn't matter who opposes him. They are nothing compared to the might, the power, the omniscience, and the sovereignty of our God. Aren't you glad that we serve a God like that? And you know what's interesting? We all know that God loves us. But you look at some of these people running in our country, God loves them whether they like it or not. Whether they think he exists or not. Because he made them. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for the time that we could spend together. I thank you for how you love us. But I thank you most for, Father, that you are in control, that you are sovereign. Nobody is going to change your plans, force you to do something different than what you've planned because you are in control. Help us to always remember that. When things seem out of control, whether it's in our country or our work or our own personal lives, it's not out of control. You foresaw this and you have preparations made for it that we just need to turn our face to you and let you do what you're going to do. Help us not to ask you to be a part of our plans, but that we ask you to allow us to be a part of your plans. Now, Father, I pray that it's in your plan. It may not be, but I pray that it's in your plan to change the hearts of those nine men and women who sit on the Supreme Court. And I pray that you do it before this newest nomination is allowed to foul the court. I pray, Father, that great victory will be there and that you will change the hearts of people who most people think that she's never going to change her mind on this. And yet when you do it, it will be absolutely fabulous display of your power. And that you will stop the killing of these babies. Father, I pray that there are so many injustices in our nation that need to be righted. I pray that you'll bring justice to our nation. But before I know, before we can ever have that, you've got to bring salvation to our nation. And I pray that you'll bring a revival, that your Holy Spirit will just be poured out on us and that it will turn the hearts of our people back to you and that they will see that you are the one true God and that there is no other way to God but through your son, Jesus. Pray that you will do that or come get us, take us home. I pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus, and the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.